what's called ecological modernization. It's the idea that sustainability is something of value. And so when we design things that are sustainable, we create whole new fields of value. The idea of this unveiling green economy, and there's a whole, as it were, potentially infinite series of fields of potential value that can be found uh, for economic growth. And whereas previously economic growth came from fulfilling all our material needs, now infinite economic growth can be found within the field of securing or making more sustainable the planet, whatever that means. This is the Three Ecologies podcast. Today's episode is part one of a two-part mini-series on ecological modernization. In today's world, we find ourselves confronted by a whole series of projects which try to seize the present ecological crises, such as climate change or the COVID-19 pandemic, as opportunities to reinvigorate a struggling system based on economic growth. The idea of ecological modernization is implicit in projects such as the Green New Deal in the US, or its rather uninspired corporate knockoff, the Green Deal of the European Union, but also projects such as the Great Reset of the World Economic Forum and the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. What are the dynamics which have put the theme of sustainability and the notion of a green transition not only on the program of progressive political movements, but on the agenda of liberal institutions like the UN, imperial elites like the royal family, and big banks and financial institutions like MasterCard and the Bank of England? This question forms the larger context to our two-part conversation with James Sheldon, whose research has focused on the commercial office sector in the UK. In this first episode, we hear the story of how a handful of private developers started using sustainability ratings in order to revive the struggling commercial office sector. What first appears to be a somewhat niche case of sustainability benchmarks in the commercial office sector becomes a fascinating journey into the emergence of office buildings in wake of the financial deregulation of the 1980s and the profound changes to our work and urban environments that those precipitated. And more generally, this case shows how the technical and regulatory end of the sustainability discourse often looks like in practice. wanted to jump in on something which I found very interesting about the introductory passage to this piece. And there are so many articles um, in geography, sustainable development, et cetera, et cetera, which refer back to the Brundtland report on sustainable development of 1987. 
uh, as almost like a throwaway line, like, oh, we just have to say this to establish that sustainable development is something uh, important and that this research is needed and, and so on and so forth. But when you write that the report heralded, quote, a new era of economic growth, one that must be based on policies that sustain and expand the environmental resource base, I thought it was so interesting because there's a really bland way of reading that sentence, which is that, oh, we must sustain the fisheries stocks or, you know, and at best we can expand the fisheries stocks beyond what they are after many decades of overfishing and so on. But there's a whole nother way of reading that sentence. Uh, and particularly that phrase about expanding the environmental resource base which is expanding what it means to talk about an environmental resource base. And what I, what I am getting at there is that through your piece, the, the evolution that you take us through the history of buildings, sustainability and energy efficiency standards, we come to understand how expanding or, or, or understanding human capital as another type of environmental resource base and optimizing human capital is where this all leads in the end. So was that, was that an intentional framing that you took or is that me like reading into it very heavily? I mean, actually, you know, um, I think you read into something that is definitely there, but it was not intentional i mean i'd love to take credit for that but um but you're so right like the uh, later part of the work i try to focus on how this notion of health and well-being and how we go about measuring health and well-being in the built environment it's not that the concept of health was readily understood and accessible and all we were doing was there's this, this, this known datum of health and we were designing buildings better to meet the known requirement more that what became the notion of health and well-being itself has emerged progressively in this like relationship with how the builders themselves have changed our very expectations of what we consider healthy and comfortable has changed and evolved over time and yeah becomes a new raw material for economic growth. So you're reading this bang on it. I really wish I had done that deliberately. <laughs> yeah, well, I think at, at that point then, it's good to sort of step back a bit into, into the history of uh, these energy efficiency ratings and the BREAM, is that how you pronounce it? How, yeah, yeah. BREAM. The, the BREAM rating in particular. I'll take a step back. I'm trying to sort of describe how um, the appearance of sustainability benchmarks was really rooted in this historic moment that was happening in London. Um, shall I talk a little bit more about that, about that moment? Please. I think also, I didn't know I was going to write about that. So I started going, it would be quite, I had this, um, like, as I say, like theoretical notion coming sort of from theory about labeling the economy, that the use of these benchmarks and these benchmarks just uh, so the listeners are aware, these benchmarks are global operating benchmarks. So in the UK, we have one called BREAM, which comes from the Building Research Establishment and it's their Environmental Assessment Methodology. It was founded in 1990. 
We have uh, in America, there's one called LEAD, which stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And there's other ones in lots of different countries all around the world, but Brehm and LEAD are the largest ones. And I think I put some numbers in the report uh, and it's like, you know, 2 billion square feet of space every year is certified using these standards. They are the predominant standards that regulate sustainability of the built environment globally. These are not a niche area. They are almost everything is modeled on this. And it's interesting how Briam itself, which was the first, has been so influential. Lead took the concepts of Briam and applied them to an American market differently. It was some of the same people, you know, and they used a very different sets of standards because, of course, they had in America a different institutional background with the American Association of Ventilation Engineers and this kind of stuff and their own bodies of standards. So who takes control of those standards is a very um, live political question. Um, so that, this is why I was researching these objects, because they are the principal things that regulate how we build sustainably. Just, just sort of like provide a little introductory edge there. But part of the way they operate, they are what are called market-based standards. So they are uh, voluntarily followed by companies who want to demonstrate their sustainability performance of a building they're building or a development they're working on. And usually that will be led by a developer or sometimes the engineers will try and persuade the developer to follow it or the architect will persuade the developer to follow it. Ultimately, always the client has to pay for it. And so the client will say, yes, this is worth it or no, it's not. Um, what they have now, because they are now such a major part of industry, many local councils or even governments basically mandate the use of BRIAM. So in the UK, most local councils, certainly in London, in the London plan, you have to meet a certain BRIAM standard. I think it's BRIAM silver. It's going to be BRIAM gold. In the UK, in the US, sorry, the same is true. LEED is being mandated. And they often see this instrument. So sustainability advocates or activists will petition, you know, the, their local government, oh, we need to have more sustainability regulation, we want sustainable buildings, and the council will go, okay, okay, we bow down to your demands, and they'll, they'll say, we're demanding that buildings must be lead. So they're very, it's, it's like the technical end of a sustainability debate. It's looking at how do we actually go about doing it now when we say we are doing it. And that's kind of why I thought, let's dig into this area. If we see something, this is what we're doing, how are we actually doing it? And is it working? regulating that would come about. So I started looking at the origins of Brian. And it was actually the people who, there was two companies that um, commissioned the BRE to uh, develop this methodology. And 
I can't remember who they were. <laughs> I've got their names here and I've just forgotten them. Oh, that's it. Sorry. It was Stanhope Developers. So Stanhope Developers, which who were led by this very dynamic fellow called Stuart Lipton, who was involved in like revolutionizing how we go about building buildings in the UK at that period. Um, Stanhope Developers had developed a really influential development called Broadgate. And this was just on the outskirts of the city of London. And when Broadgate was finally completed in, I think it was completed in the late 1980s or early 1990s. So the start of this office boom was in the mid 1980s. And there's a whole series of very specific geographical reasons of why what happened in terms of the overproduction ended up occurring. So, yeah, okay. This is why this story is hard to tell. And this is why a technical economic network approach is really useful because everything is happening simultaneously. Trying to craft the teleology out of this is itself a, oh, we need a narrative, you know? But the act of imposing this theological narrative is kind of constraining. Um, I think the way I'll tell this story is from, it's from the perspective of Thatcher <laughs> and finance. Um, <laughs> why not? This is turning uh, into, a, into a play or something. You're... <laughs> Honestly, I spent a lot of time while trying to work out how to write this, trying to work out, yeah, trying to work out how I can write this as a narrative. Because like, these are both, it's not even the fact that there's these three poles because the poles will intersect and everything's kind of melded together into a, different people playing different roles in different places, but also in, over different scales. And so you can't even separate it out and go, there was this bit of London doing this. And, but let's start by separating it out. Um, in 1983, I think, no, let's get this correct, because accuracy is always a, a nice a nice thing to have. 87, no? 1987, that's, no, it's before then. The, 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 big, the big bang. 86. 86. I'm yeah. throwing 86 in the ring. God, I hope you're right. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're so right. So basically, in 1986, fact, sorry, I, I'm going to get this better. <laughs> I should have read this all beforehand and, and got it in my head. In 1986, Thatcher uh, instituted what was, what was afterwards called the Financial Big Bang. And what she basically did was she liberalised, I say she, her government, um, liberalised regulations surrounding mortgage lending, which blurred traditional distinctions between retail and commercial banking, and deregulated the securities exchange. And the deregulation of the securities exchange was the critical thing, because it did two major things to the City of London. The first thing it did was it allowed computer-based access to the stock exchange. So the original City of London before this point was essentially organised geographically around the stock exchange because in order to be on the stock exchange you had to have the brokers who would actually bid on the stocks but to contact the brokers you had to have client instructions to the brokers so there's whole loads of houses with like brokerage houses and there were runners that moved between them and jobbers there was basically this complex social and spatial network that operated around the stock exchange that was extremely physical and also extremely historical and this was also you know the a very entrenched kind of power that existed at the time. And so you have all these very, very old institutions that have been around since, you know, 
the what is it late 1700s really which is when sort of like you start getting joint stock companies with the appearance of the east india company and these kind of things so what fashion is you liberalize that suddenly you could access the stock exchange through what was called the sequel uh, system which you had computer screens and we're all used to this concept now now it's you can access it from your phone and trade stocks and shares from an app but at this point this was a very radical change so you have this where offices and People able to um, trade stocks and securities were able to do it from office floors. So you have a completely new type of technical demand come along for how and what is needed by office space. But also they can locate differently. They don't have to locate in this very, very expensive, specific streets of London to have their offices. And the other thing that happened was it allowed foreign banks to access these stock exchanges. These two things together basically mean you get an explosion in demand for a very specific type of office space that no one's built before. And so it's how do we build this completely new set of technical requirements and how do we build lots of it very, very quickly? And this is why you have characters like I mentioned Stanhope developers. This was where characters like Stuart Lipton come in, saying we've got to build these new high-tech offices, what's needed to build them. We need to revolutionize the engineering process. So you get very different kinds of space-building practices, different kinds of architects to try and address this new demand. The City of London is, was, was, is run, essentially, the City of London is a borough district of London and it's controlled entirely by its local council which is not a council but actually the City of London Corporation and their planning rules well they were very very much of the existing as I said this embedded historical spatial and social sets of relations and didn't want to modernize what the City of London looked like so they said essentially there's very restrictive planning laws on new office space so where do you build so you start getting all these developments appearing on the edge of the city of London. You get some new developments appearing uh, south of the city of London, across London Bridge, and sort of like um, yeah, around the London Bridge area. And then you get a new development across the pond, not across the pond, that's the wrong uh, metaphor, across the river on the Isle of Dogs, which was uh, became came to be Canary Wharf. So you have these new um, spaces appearing and growing. And after a few years, the city of London became really concerned that Canary Wharf would represent a rival financial centre to their power. And so they very quickly liberalised office building regulations there as well. So there's office space being built everywhere. And when it comes on the market, there's way too much. And prices crash. And so what you see is that these developers like Stanhope, who have built this incredibly expensive office space, and interestingly as well, this is where another part of the story also fits in, I mentioned that part of the financial liberalization was the liberalization of mortgage lending. For the first time, banks were significantly lending to property companies. So property companies used to be mainly funded by um, like things like insurance companies and pension funds. And certainly they were being funded by short, you know, loans funded off short-term debts by the banks. So you have a completely different kind of financial set of social relations. You have a completely different kind of technological set of social relations. So you have this very, very heavily indebted property companies who've built all this stock and the price has just fallen through the floor. Many developers just went bust straight out.
developers of Canary Wharf, uh, which is Olympia and York. Are they are they based in Toronto? They're this massive yes. Canadian. Yes, yes. They had built Canary Wharf, and they had other developments on as well. But they built Canary Wharf with around, I think it was in around tens of billions of bank debt, which was mainly funded by the Canadian banks speculatively into this property boom. In 1992, they had to file for bankruptcy with $20 billion of unperforming debts, mainly owed to Canadian banks. Canary Wharf was a huge financial failure at the time. Obviously, that's really incredible to sort of like believe now. So all of these property companies at the start of the 90s were in incredible debt and incredible financial distress. And they're in an overheated property market with a limited number of clients and a lot of office space to choose from. And it was with this context that Briam was created. Both, It was basically a joint venture, I think, between Stanhope and Olympia and York developers who made Bria, uh, the BRE develop this system. And they, they, what they thought was that their developments, the de- offices that they built, were better environmentally performing than other people's offices. So they wanted an, an independent accreditation scheme in which they could demonstrate this uh, better performance to the wider market and thereby, as it were, clients would select their buildings. It was a way of trying to secure realization uh, of, of inputted value. Um, it didn't work, ultimately, as you can kind of see in both. Well, Stanhope ultimately kind of went bust, but were really bought out by British Land, which is a, one of the major developers that kind of mopped up. What I think is really interesting about this story is it kind of shows the origination of these market-based metrics was in this sort of like desire to try to secure client demand. They were operating as a way to sort of make their property more desirable. And it also shows as well that even though much of this property that was built was a complete financial failure at the time, these technical requirements and the practices that went into the building of these offices in you know to meet these requirements, these new requirements of computer screens and banks of trading floors. This is where open plan offices come from because you still had trading floors, but it was on the computers. So you needed lines of sight. You could see the ticker tapes of the financial metrics of the day going across the screens, et cetera. I think we can all all used to these images of what these uh, kind of office spaces look like. And this is really the root of it started at this, um, yeah, in these like late 80s, these design practices. And to this day, they are, I, I think, really the prototype for how we go about building contemporary office space. Though it is, of course, has slightly developed and changed over the years. But yeah, despite the fact that they were huge financial failures, what you do is you still embed a set of very, very influential and um, widely, uh, widely sort of propagated practices of how you build out this type of office space. precisely the consolidation of the market that results uh, from 
all of these different failures of the property companies that results in a shift in power towards these like very small set of developers as well, right? That that all agree, okay, we are now using this BREEAM certification from, from here on out. Yeah, I think so. What I write in the, in the paper is that there's a consolidation as you, you know, because so many developers go bust or are bought out, there's a consolidation of a number of developers themselves. Um, in terms of the shift in power, they became very powerful, these developers, because there was a small number of them. And ultimately as well, though there was initially significant overproduction and this very short term, hugely and highly leveraged companies failed. As you see, Canary Wharf is now, you know, and has been for decades booming. And all this office space ultimately is incredibly valuable. Uh, Broadgate is, I think, Broadgate, which was the developer, development by um, Stanhope, developer on the edge of the city of London, is, I think, still some of the most valuable office space in the world. It's worth, I think, something like £5 billion now. And it's, you know, I think it's still held by British land as an incredibly valuable asset. Um, that might not be correct. But... Yeah, I think there was a significant shift in power, but I think in terms of the, this is where the research side comes in as well. In the 80s or slightly before the 80s, there had been a bit of a shift in how research is organized in the UK. I only touch on this in the paper and it's definitely a much, much larger issue. But one of the things that occurred was there was a, a research assessment regime that was brought in where research used to be assessed by academics on the basis of, do we want to research this? Started becoming assessed by governments and uh, the corporations it was researching for in terms of the kinds of economic value it was creating or whether it was creating economic value or how effective this research was. There became a whole regime of metrics applied to the research in terms of its relevance. Um, And it's not clear that this was necessarily a bad thing. It's more ambiguous than that. Uh, at the time, I was when reading quite a few papers by different practitioners, some people felt that this meant research was more focused to industry's needs and there's a whole load of new demands coming along and we need to be addressing that and it's really good that research is connecting into it. Other researchers felt that uh, public interest was kind of being lost in this sort of uh, prioritization. Again, I, it's not an area which I was able to research in thoroughly enough, but certainly this is related to like what people would now call the neoliberal university. You have the rise of this very targeted and extremely ex- externally assessed modes of researching. So you have a new type of research regime, and one of the central pushes or one of the central push factors for occurring for that occurring was the developers who, at the time, Thatcher was really dropping investment into research in general, uh, investment into commercial and uh, built environment research. I, I can't remember the figures I do have from somewhere, but it dropped by about 50, 60% throughout the early 80s. And this was essentially made up by developers who were trying to build this new office space, piling money into these, uh, in, in, into commissioning research. You know, they commissioned, for example, this environmental assessment methodology. And so lots of the money to these research institutes started coming from developers. Yeah, so I think there was a shift in power, but it, when exactly it occurred is, it's also really nebulous, difficult to place because I do think it's part of the function of the fact that they had so much more capital to play with 
having access to bank debt in a, in a way that they never had access to before. definitely need to explore that theme of research and what research becomes within this environment um, more. But we, before we do that, I think just one of my perceptions when, when, when reading your, your, your paper was that there are sort of there are these multiple levels and the level that you first encounter is that it's almost like a comparison or an analysis, a discursive analysis of this new set of um, benchmarks, which promotes a a kind of a healthy building uh, um, discourse and an and idea. And where at the surface of it, you say this kind of negates more traditional energy efficiency discourses and, 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 and ambitions within, I guess, within uh, office space building in particular, but this probably applies more widely, but it's what I find really fascinating about your research is that it's sort of like seeing the world in a grain type of thing where you look at this highly particular, peculiar type of thing. But to some extent, it does read sort of like a report, like a technical report comparing these these different um, these different labels, these different benchmarks. But then it kind of spirals out from there. And it's much more I, it's you, you start from comparing these tiny, de- seemingly tiny details within regulatory systems and sort of building practices of this one niche within one country, mostly in London and so on. But then from there, you get an idea. And 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 this is what I like so much about what you said, is that it really shows you how material neoliberalism is, that neoliberalism is not just this idea of like, uh, deregulating things, and and we have we oftentimes have this very abstract idea of neoliberalism, also because it's such a hefty concept. But seeing the real material, geographical, but also social and mental impacts of neoliberalism, I was even thinking at one, I was even wondering at one point, where did the idea of office space in the abstract come from? Because I wonder if before the 1980s saying the term office space was almost nonsensical. You would say, oh, I'm going to the lawyer's office or to the dentist's office. You need a qualification. What, you're going to the office? What, what is that about? Like, what's the, you need a you need a denomination for that. But then, and, and you see the kind of social landscape and the mental landscape that emerges with these open plan offices, which are, as you pointed out, a material consequence of the, deregulation of financial markets is a very, very real consequence, which impacted the daily lives of so many people and our whole uh, substantial part of our Western and then expanding from from the West, the psyche of of, of much of the world. Think about a, a TV series like The Office, which really pokes fun at and, and 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 shows painfully the type of social relations and the type of mental ecology that emerges in the open plan office right so absolutely these are the real consequences and then also the real geographical consequences within london yeah no, i i i love that you mentioned the office i'll come back to that in a second 
In terms of the origin of the open plan, absolutely. It's not the fact that actually that it dis, as it were, the ideas originated here. What really happened is, and then you can see by the international nature of many of these developers, you know, Olympia and York coming in from Canada, who also operated significantly in the American market. What really happened was the entry of American, lots of American design practices into the UK market. So lots of the architecture that we started seeing was actually heavily inspired by American solutions that had been trialed for different, you know, for the American um, companies surrounding the American Stock Exchange. So it was, it, it, yes, but definitely the arising of the open plan is strongly related to, yeah, this explosion of finance. And you say this very material sort of like effects that come from what seems like a abstract change to securities deregulation. I think that's, for me, one of the most fascinating parts of it, that you can have what is a technical change to financial policy, but it has, and also has a very material effect, both in terms of these environments that we're building, but also how London is laid out. Like, you wouldn't be Canary Wharf if it hadn't been for this specific set of abstract decisions, and also how that affected the very local spatial politics of the city of London and how that operated. Incredibly, another thing that I think comes out for me is the contingency of it. You know, so this is not that this was always going to get built this way. Like I was reading into Canary Wharf and it was, uh, it was actually a restaurateur. He was also a, uh, I think he was a client at the banks uh, or a friend of one of the senior people at the bank. I can't remember exactly his relationship now, but he was a restaurant and he was going to the Isle of Dogs and he was like, this would be an amazing location for a new restaurant. And then he was like, oh, actually, this also might be a good place for some office buildings. Now we can access the stock exchange remote, you know, over, you know, by computers. We can lay high-speed internet cables underneath the Thames out here. Maybe we should do that. And so it was a couple of very charismatic and sort of like, I see you could use the word entrepreneurial guys who were like, let's just develop this here. The, you know, the incredible contingency of a couple of people doing it. later in the paper focuses on the Porter building in Slough. And the office was, the original office, I know the UK office, was set in Slough. And part of the motivation for having this Porter building with this new health and well-being and, you know, green plants and look at this beautiful thing, was to try to dispel the image of office work in Slough being the office. Like people in the council said that his intimate are like we had to change the image of work in Slough, and this is one of the ways of doing it. I found so many, so much of this theme, even though it seems on the surface to be entirely different, reminded me of the conversation which we just just had uh, with uh, Emily Reisman, which is uh, one of the other episodes that we're going to release soon. Um, about the almond industry and how the almond industry has had to, in the face of uh, repeated 
crises and threats of overproduction ha has had to launch new meanings for the almond and has had to mobilize this entire semiotic machine in order to produce meanings, to produce whether that's involving scientific research and really highlighting the nutritional benefits of almonds or these types of things. So definitely check out that, that episode. Um, but so you could think, what, what does almond? What do almonds have to do with uh, office space in London? But the interesting thing here is that, of course, on the surface, your your paper is kind of a comparison between, let's call it, traditional energy efficiency uh, discourses for building office space, which then uh, encounters this new wave of and 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 the the takeover of health and how health is kind of in a sense maybe health is employed as a concept to breathe life back into uh into office space and to make to give office space its edge back because it seems like since the 1980s mid 1980s when as the you kind of genial genealogically uh started us out since the thatcher years it starts with that, with the overproduction of office space and then the price crash. And it seems like this entire industry of building office space has since been in this, in this, in this quite frantic rhythm where you, uh, where, where you sort of need to produce new meanings of what offices are. And the, at, at many points that the industry spokespeople or these, these, these pamphlets that you quote, they say, this is about, this is about distinguishing uh, yourself from other uh, things, from other places, from other companies, from other buildings that are being built. And you need these labels, you need these benchmarks, you need a stamp on your building in order to have that competitive edge. But that's something, that's a thirst that's never quenched. That just seems to sort of move forward indefinitely. Because there, because there would be a naive way of reading this and of thinking like, oh, this is just a sort of a case of what we would in German call etikettenschwindel, like fraudulent labeling. It's just they're they're pretending like this is about green buildings, but it's really just a sort of a, a fraudulent way of, of of selling something as renewable, which is not renewable because it's actually kind of more even by the old standards of what renewable means in terms of energy efficiency and so on, this is just kind of distracting from it. This is just fraudulent. This is just lies. But it's much more complicated than that, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I was going to, um, it's a lot to unpack. And I, uh, I think I'll start with the, this world and the, the world from a long grain of sand perspective. It's, I'm really glad that you sort of got that from the paper. Um, I should have mentioned this before in response to your first comment, but I, I forgot to add it. Um, I was kind of trying to follow the line of people like uh, Madeleine Atrich, uh, who also writes about science and technology studies and uh, just sort of like a biker as well. And it's like a few these people did some very famous studies in the early 90s. And I was trying to follow part of their, their kind of um, way of writing about technology, which was to take a very specific technological artifact. In this case, it's more of a socio-technical artifact. This design thing is not just a technical instrument, though it is technical. It is also something that is social. It directs behavior. It directs practice. And it directs what people do. Um, 
but trying to use this very microcosm to unpack a whole variety of social relations and how this thing operates. And she does that fantastically with, oh, what was the example? Uh, well, no, it's not her. I think it was Biker did the, the fluorescent light bulb and goes with like, how did the fluorescent light bulb come to be the way it is? And you have to then unpack the relationship between General Electric and the utility companies. And that led to a certain kind of technological definition of this artifact. And when you really dig into the technology, the specific, um, Bruno Latour writes a lot about this and Calon, um, when you try and unpack the artifact as it ends up, technological form feels natural because it's just what we have. We have mobile phones. We have, you know, this is how it couldn't be any other way. But actually, when you really detail dig into the history of any of these artifacts, there's a whole load of contingent and very specific decisions that led to it appearing in exactly that form that I think they used a phrase are like erased in reverse when it is appears. You know, it appears as, it, as if it couldn't be any different. What could be different of a car? And people ask you that and you go, well, I don't know. You know, you can't answer that question. I live in the world where there's the car. I can't imagine the different thing. Uh, because it's, you, it immediately becomes, I say immediately, obviously, it had to become embedded, but now it is embedded. It is, as it were, part of our material world and existence. And imagining something different is so challenging, which is part of the reason why um, sustainable transition thinking is so challenging. Because... And, and interestingly, I think also why one of the approaches that is taken by so many in the green movement is what I would describe as like replacement, replacementism or something, you know, where you just go, well, cars are bad because they pollute, so we'll keep the car because we're so used to the technological form. We can't imagine something different and we'll just make it electric and, and like less bad. <laughs> in some, in and, some and, way, and not other. just the and not just the technical form, but the social and mental form as well, right? Like everything that 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 car ownership and car and automobile transportation implies in terms of the way that that's remodeled what it what what it means to be a man, what it means, what the family means, and these kinds of things, right? I'm off first name in terms of him. Uh, one of his innovations is uh, the solar solar city. Is it called? Um, this one of his solar startups, which uses roof tiles as solar panels. So the solar panels look like roof tiles. Oh, we're not changing the aesthetics of the architecture at all. You can have your suburban American house two up, two down. You know, with the classic slate roof tiles, but the whole roof is actually a solar panel. And oh, that's now solved the problem. Before, no one would accept it. These stupid pounds on the roof, who would go for that? You look like an idiot. So <laughs> let's because the interesting thing there is this kind of this kind of this strange relationship between this subjective crisis that never gets resolved there's there is a kind of a 
there is no new model in one sense, yet at the same time, new models are being launched constantly. And so uh, going back to the uh, Slough is, is, is the borough where the office was filmed and now this sort of uh, this flagship project for this new uh, green, healthy building. There's now this effort to launch this new subjectivity to 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 um, to cultivate a new a new kind of a new appearance or whatever. But it goes much deeper than that, right? Because it's not just an appearance, but it's really a way to unlock very material flows of uh, or or also monetary flows and flows of people sort of making Slough an attract like uh, an, an attractive place to live and with the um, attracting attracting talent as um, Richard Florida would say right so but it's this kind of thing where you're slotting in a new model but that model is seems to be and and presents itself as like we're not the old thing anymore this is not now we're doing it right we used to do it wrong now we're doing it right but in a way it's just setting up the next crisis already or something right yeah, all the, all the next crisis is necessary. I mean, if we want to take a more, um, there's, there's a lot, there's like several different themes I'd like to sort of unpack in what you said as well, both in terms of the creation of this, uh, as you say, subjectivity, or this like constant creation of these new fields or modes of consumption or modes of why we would consume something, demand. So there's that. And there's also this question of uh, you know, this constant recreation of these new things. And I think you can take a Marxist perspective on this, I think, which is the fact that you need to have these new fields of consumption being created because we need to be creating new demands. We need to be creating new uh, area, arenas of capital accumulation. And it's crucially one of the ways in which that has to be done is by devaluing what currently or previously existed as being inadequate. And I think this is this process of uh, like seesaw effect, I think, as uh, Neil Smith would describe it in terms of how capital moves around, where you go and all this new area is really cool and suddenly that explodes with lots of capital coming in and it's gentrified and turns to something different. And then but this area back here that was cool a decade ago is now you know, somewhere out of date and not acceptable to them. One of the things that I would say there as well is that it relies not only upon the, the very physical acts of devaluation and demolition and so on, but also symbolic devaluation and demolition. And what I mean by that is that you had the BRIAM rating, uh, which encompassed all sorts of different things. It wasn't just about uh, carbon dioxide emissions or energy efficiency or so on. It was also about preventing Legionnaire's disease and uh, moderating wind in the particular neighborhood and so on. But it, as this uh, rating becomes successful, it loses steam, right? It no longer has the cachet that it sort of has. So. It, it has to be rewritten what it what it was once about by the same people who are both burying it and relying upon it at the same time. So when like the building research establishment and its new partners of the World Green Building Council are saying, okay, the, the BRIAM accomplished what we need to accomplish, but 
it had a very narrow definition of green. The, the World Green Building Council wrote this complex relationship between health, well-being, productivity, and green building points to a need to reinterpret, some might say rescue, the term green from an association purely with the environmental movement. The goal should be buildings that maximize benefits for people and leave the planet better off as well. And you have, you have this movement which both relies upon the success and the failure of Briam at the same time to reinvent this new well rating, um, W-E-L-L, which is primarily geared towards producing the, uh, I was going to say subjectivity, but it's not only subjectivity, it's also about optimal physical performance as well. Thermal comfort, the amount of daylight that they're getting, the amount of noise that they're exposed to, and so on. And this is all reinvented as green in a way that, yeah, as I said, it, it, it relies upon the previous successes, but also plays up many of the previous failures of it as well. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. That's, that's absolutely true. And I think I try, I don't know whether this remained in the paper, which you saw, I tried to sort of get a point across that uh, it, it makes up the previous failures, you know, as if the buildings being built 10 years ago were just not healthy at all. But that's not the case. The concern with air quality, the concern with having good light and good daylight coming in, the concern with having the building materials not being toxic was in Briam and Lead, essentially from the beginning, but certainly in a very developed form from about 20 years ago, from the early 2000s. One of the challenges of all of this stuff has always been how do you work out what those things are? You know, what is enough daylight? What is a, when is a building material toxic or not toxic? There's a super interesting and dark history to that, which I don't know if you, I don't know, there's so many different tangents that this topic can lead to. Like I say, all these society is represented and reflected in a small thing. Well, yeah, if I can jump back in, what also seems to be happening is that there they're playing up the extent to which Briam and LEED actually helped to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and, and so on and resource use. And they, they sort of say, oh, so we've accomplished all of these environmental goals so far. And what we have to do now is really shift to a new understanding of green that puts emphasis on uh, human capabilities. But the reality is the reason they're shifting is because they seem to have run into a bit of a block as well in terms of uh, not having the technical or institutional frameworks in place to really make significant brain breakthroughs in terms of carbon emissions. Is, is that correct? Would, would you also see it that way? I'd, I'd say not, not that there's not the technical breakthroughs, but I think the contradiction has been reached between the desires of a certain kind of architectural and technological style or mode of production of these offices and um, what would actually be required in terms of a design and architectural requirements to make them genuinely zero carbon, genuinely net zero, genuinely environmentally regenerative. And it seems that there's a kind of general attitude in the industry of, well, we've gone far enough. It's good enough. We are, we're basically there. 
but as I understood it as well from your paper, is this so already within the context of Bream, the brokers of that type of sustainable revolution within office building um, always needed, of course, uh, practically, pragmatically to emphasize the return of investment, right? That this idea that this will pay for itself within X years, sort of the, this might cost you a little bit more, but the energy efficiency, which you gain from it will, will uh, pay back the investment within a short time. But then, and this is the great, that you include this graph as well, that at some point, I guess this sort of the market gets saturated. So Bream becomes the new norm in a sense. So what's the competitive edge to it anymore? Why? Like it, it, it becomes almost, it is, I guess it is a privately developed benchmark, but then it almost becomes a public, uh, a public standard of building in practice. Um, and so then the market is saturated. That market of green building is saturated. So you need to sort of uh, the the uh, kind of being reminded again of Emily Reisman's paper about almonds and the idea of a spatial fix. So you need to sort of you need to find a new frontier for what can how can we rescue the green the term green as as the quote that will um read out how can the term green be rescued from its from its uh, from the sta- from the stale and sort of unprofitable hole that it's been plunged into and then people look at the at the costs of, 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 of companies and they realize actually only like a percent is, is energy costs of their expenditure and 90% is staff costs. So they're like, oh, if we can associate green building with reducing staff costs and not just energy costs, this can be a much better argument in terms of return of investment for the for the for the company and and for the property developer to say like to say to to the so that the property developer can say to the companies that rent or buy the office space rent probably um, can say this will make significant uh, savings in your staff costs and sort of like only a percent of those ninety percent of staff costs is going to be as much as that one percent of energy costs. So even if you had no energy expenditure at all, that is equivalent to like slightly over a percent of saving in staff costs. So in comes this idea of uh, efficiency and productivity, which really reminds me of the superfood conversation we had with Emily, which is that you have health and safety standards, which are about reaching a certain minimum, which are about, okay, people shouldn't get injured at work and they should have sufficient air. And then there, there's a determination of what is sufficient air, what is sufficient sunlight. But so how do you unlock that for more profitability? You do that by um, creating uh, the 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 discourse, but it's more than discourse. Cr- like mobilizing the semiotics of performance, which has to do with research as well, researching into productivity, into how people are most productive, and sort of unlocking these minimal gains within staff productivity, which drive a higher return of investment than a hundred percent energy efficiency. Yes. And that is true. That one that one visual that you're holding up that I imagine the listeners can't say is exactly is exactly the the point. And you've basically explained it perfectly. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
was a essentially what I describe as the sort of like that's why I just use the word term negation, sort of imminent in this idea is that there's an idea that's created by um, this mode of regulation and it's what's called eco ecological modernization. It's the idea that sustainability is something of value. And so when we design things that are sustainable, we create whole new fields of value. The idea of this unveiling green economy and there's a whole, as it were, potentially infinite series of fields of potential value that can be found uh, for economic growth. And whereas previously economic growth came from fulfilling all our material needs, now infinite economic growth can be found within the field of securing or making more sustainable the planet, whatever that means. was part one of our two-part conversation with James Sheldon. In the second part, we'll explore the recent shift towards a framing around health and well-being and how that is changing the meaning of sustainability and the green transition. Thanks for listening. We also want to thank again our friend Gaetano Fiorin for the music. You can find more of his music at Gaetano Fiorin on SoundCloud.